sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be continuing our conversation about the upcoming Summit of the Americas and how it could uh, likely backfire on Washington in terms of its designs, both in the Latin American and Caribbean region and geopolitically and much, much more. And it's always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, Tuesday was a big primary day across the United States, if you didn't know. Pennsylvania Republicans aren't really sure what to do about the win by State Senator Doug Mastriano, who won the GOP primary for the governor's race. Mastriano is a far-right election denier and was a leading force in the effort to overturn the 2020 election results, and he isn't expected to actually win the November election. Mastriano is such a black spot on the GOP in the state that some Republicans are openly considering backing the Democratic nominee, Josh Shapiro, while the Republican Governors Association is signaling that they won't put any money into the campaign uh, for Mastriano, which would be huge. But this kind of he's so terrible that he can't possibly win outlook on this race isn't necessarily a good thing for Democrats, because that's basically the strategy that was used in the 2016 election when the Clinton campaign implemented their little Pied Piper strategy to elevate the game show host circus barker Donald Trump, who was so terrible that he couldn't possibly win. As much as Mastriano is considered a complete buffoon and isn't expected to win in November, political history shows that's it's not a good idea to base a strategy on any of that. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman won his Democratic primary easily, despite being hospitalized after suffering a stroke a few days earlier in a race that both parties see as crucial in the battle for control of the Senate. Fetterman will face the winner of the still contested GOP race between retired hedge fund executive David McCormick, who is locked in a neck and neck battle with Dr. Mehmet Oz, the celebrity heart surgeon endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Now, that race has not yet been called, but I wonder, why don't people bring up the fact that it was Oprah Winfrey who unleashed Dr. Oz and his quack weight loss schemes on the world? Don't blame it all on Trump. Dr. Oz is Oprah Winfrey's fault. Then in a race between Fetterman and Oz, honestly, I'd put my money on Fetterman if I had that much money to lose on betting in this wacky political landscape in the U.S. right now. Probably the highlight of the primaries was the loss in North Carolina of Trump darling Madison Cawthorn. Nothing could have saved Cawthorn, not even Trump's personal plea to give him a second chance. Not after pictures surfaced of him clad in women's lingerie, not after his claims that he was invited to a cocaine-fueled Washington orgy by leaders that he respected, not after his two attempts to carry a gun onto an airplane, not after some ethics violations in regard to insider trading, and not after he called Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky a thug. You know, I don't have a problem with two of those things Carthorne did, but establishment GOP in North Carolina had had enough 
of the young Trump acolyte. Who's crying now, Cawthorn? The most important thing, I think, about Tuesday's primaries, however, is that groups committed to blocking progressive Democrats have put a lot of money behind moderate Democratic candidates. In North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Oregon, the money that PACs spent on stopping progressive Democrats yielded mixed results with two progressive candidates losing in North Carolina, but progressive Summer Lee is on the precipice of winning a close race in Pittsburgh's 12th district to become the first black woman elected to Congress from Pennsylvania. And Biden-endorsed incumbent Kurt Schrader trails his progressive challenger, Jamie McLeod Skinner. Centrist moderate Democrat candidates received millions in campaign funding from groups like United Democracy Project, uh, that's a super PAC aligned with the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and Democratic Majority for Israel, uh, Center Forward, which is a pharmaceutical-backed PAC, and Mainstream Democrats, which is funded by LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman. These are organizations that are certainly not advocating for any policies that put money in your or my pockets certainly aren't calling for redistribution of anybody's wealth back to us for sure. But expect the amount of money spent on destroying any progressive candidate who does want to do those things to outpace anything we've seen in midterm elections thus far in the months to come. I think that's the real story of these primary races, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that the Democrats are willing to throw the kitchen sink at any effort to push the party to the left, which reveals the fallacy of believing that could have been done by electing Joe Biden. He's going to back every candidate who vows to keep the Democratic Party firmly to the right of center. So the Democrats aren't even fighting the Republicans in these upcoming races. They're fighting you and me. And Western news outlets are still avoiding using the L word in describing the turn of events in Mariupol, Ukraine, saying that fighters were, quote unquote, evacuated. At least Reuters says that nearly 700 more Mariupol fighters have surrendered, which I guess is as close as Western media will come at this point to saying that Ukraine's fascist volunteer unit has lost Mariupol to Russia even if they still won't call them Nazis. I'll take what I can get these days. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Jason Zubo, an immigration attorney, partner at Zubo and Pilcher PLLC, and blogger at www.asylumist.com and author of the book Asylumist, How to Seek Asylum in the United States and Keep Your Sanity. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. And Jason, as there continues to be uh, a lot of scrutiny, and I think... Uh, well-deserved scrutiny of the 
um, immigration policy of the Joe Biden administration. Um, we've seen recently major media platforms like the Washington Post uh, publish these opinion pieces saying that uh, uh, the crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border is uh, being exacerbated by Congress failing to pass uh, immigration reform. But uh, in your most recent piece on your blog, Asylumist.com, called The Biden Administration Can Fix the Border Even Without Congress, uh, you make precisely that argument that in truth, there's a good bit that Joe Biden could do to address this issue even without the direct involvement of Congress. And so I was hoping you could help us understand just what that is and also perhaps why Biden maybe hasn't done more uh, uh, in that way to really address this. Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, uh, it's a little complicated, but the people who are arriving at the border uh, are asking for asylum, a lot of them. Um, And right now what's happening is there's a rule in place called Title 42, which was put in place by the Trump administration. It's essentially a public health rule. And the purpose is to keep people out due to the public health emergency, which is the COVID pandemic. Uh, But, of course, what that is arbitrarily doing is just excluding people without giving them any sort of due process of law. Like when a person arrives at the border, they're allowed to seek asylum under U.S. law, um, and their claim should be heard. If they qualify, they could be allowed into the United States. If they don't qualify, they can be removed from the United States. The problem with Title 42 is it doesn't give people that opportunity. And so that's excluded hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the Biden administration and the tail end of the Trump administration. Um, So now that's scheduled to be uh, lifted. Um, It's unclear whether that's actually going to happen. There's a lawsuit uh, from different states' attorneys generals like Texas and other states that oppose lifting Title 42 because they want to keep the restrictions in place. Um, but my argument is essentially that we, we shouldn't be arbitrarily rejecting people from the U.S., including people who have a valid claim for asylum. We should um, uh, be giving them uh, a due process of law and, and a hearing, but we need to think more carefully about who we actually want to admit. I mean, part of the problem is uh, we haven't reformed the immigration law, really, uh, in more than 30 years. I mean, we're really 40 years. Um, right now, we have a definition of refugee that uh, was codified in law in 1980 with the Refugee Act. And actually, that definition comes from the 1951 uh, Refugee Convention, you know, which occurred just a few years after World War II. So we have an outdated definition of refugee, um, and it, 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 it fails to protect people who maybe we want to protect. Um, and on the other hand, it may include people who we want to exclude so we, we have not had a conversation, uh, a rational conversation, about who we want to admit and who we want to exclude. And my point, and this is a point I've been arguing for a long time, is that we need to have that conversation, um, whether preferably in the Congress, um, and we should apply our national values, or the national values we hope that our country will uh, sort of stand for, to decide who we want to let in, who we want to let, not let in. Um, but even if that doesn't happen, the Biden administration has a lot of flexibility with the current uh, uh, definition of refugee to decide who would qualify for protection and who wouldn't. So my argument is that we need to to look at that and kind of come up with a definition that's more workable. Uh, then we also have to, of course, think about the political implications because the, the crisis at the border has been exploited uh, for years now by uh, sort of restrictionist politicians. President Trump is the kind of the 
the main exemplar of that, um, who who are using it to the political advantage, and then that, of course, is uh, creating a lot of additional problems because we're, you know, we're we're in a, a sort of a crisis of democracy in our country, and this is uh, not helping matters. So, um, you know, I, I think what we really need is either a, a conversation within the Congress about how to amend the law to uh, include the people we want to include and exclude those we don't. And if that doesn't work, which it seems like it won't, um, then the Biden administration really needs to take some action to make those changes administratively to 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 sort of bring the situation uh, under control and to, to be able to demonstrate that they're actually taking action and dealing with legitimate refugees and trying to exclude people who shouldn't be coming in, not just doing it arbitrarily through Title 42. Yeah, and it seems that um, one way that people are categorized for um, approval for asylum is um, putting them in a particular social group or a PSG. And just the definition of uh, what an uh, an approved PSG is, is is surprisingly vague. And I didn't even realize uh, this. So I'm wondering if you could explain what a PSG is, what, you know, how it's used now uh, and how uh, uh, revising uh, the immigration laws, or at least being specific, more specific about uh, PSGs, could actually improve uh, immigration practices going forward. Yeah, you know, so you don't get asylum just because you fear harm in your country. You get asylum because you fear harm in your country on account of a protected reason. And there's five protected reasons race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and particular social group, or PSG. Um, the first four of those are more or less self-explanatory. You know, your political opinion or your race or your uh, religion, someone wants to harm you because they don't like you because of your religion or your race. Um, that's a basis for asylum. But PSG is a flexible category. Um, it, it really was kind of an add-on to the 1951 Refugee Convention, and there's not a lot of debate that kind of surrounds adding that additional category. But uh, really starting in the 1990s, uh, attorneys, advocates uh, were uh, working to help their clients. And, and as a result, the definition of PSG has expanded through uh, litigation. Um, and that's helped a lot of people. You know, it's helped uh, gay and lesbian people, for example. They're considered part of a particular social group. It's helped, to some extent, victims of domestic violence. Um, it's helped members of an extended family. If I don't like your whole family and I want to harm you, that can be a basis for asylum because family is a particular social group. But the sort of um, definition has kind of ebbed and flowed over the years, uh, and the Trump administration tried to kind of claw back a lot of the expansion that occurred over the couple decades before uh, that administration came into power. And so there's this back and, back and forth, um, and, and the result is that uh, there's, there's never really been a, a, a sort of a solid, workable understandable, predictable definition of who falls into a particular social group. And so that type of uncertainty is problematic, and especially uh, it's an issue at the southern border because most of the people coming there, about 63%, are coming from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Um, those people are not fleeing religious harm or uh, really ethnic harm for the most part or, uh, or, or political harm. Mostly they're fleeing kind of this generalized violence from gangs. They're fleeing domestic violence. They're fleeing um, for you know, reasons of interpersonal problems where the government just can't protect people because those governments are, are not very effective, to say the least. Um, and so they're, they're, they're seeking protection based on a particular social group. And so when we're left with a situation where we really don't have a solid definition of PSG, 
people who are coming here really have no certainty. Like they don't know what to expect. So why not just try and get in? We'll see what happens um, because we don't know. Some people will get in. Some people won't. Um, it depends who is making the decision, the adjudicator. Um, and that's not really a very good way to run an immigration system. Uh, we should have more certainty surrounding PSG. Um, now, I will say that uh, you know over the years, uh, the government has tried to define uh, what the PSG is. Um, they've had some modest success, but a lot of failure. And so it's left uh, people with really a lot of uncertainty. Um, and that, that has been a problem. It continues to be a problem. It encourages people to come to the southern border um, because maybe they'll get in. Uh, but, but also it, it, it leaves uh, uh, lawyers like me, for example, in advising our clients in a situation where we can't always even tell them do they qualify for asylum or not because uh, it's unclear whether they would meet the definition of a PSG, um, especially because that definition keeps changing. So, uh, you know, the result is for people who don't have lawyers, which is most of these people, of course, arriving at the border, um, there really is a a lot of uncertainty about whether they'll get in or not um, and whether they would qualify for asylum. So what what I think is the Biden administration really needs to take the bull by the horns. They need to um, come up with uh, a more workable definition. It's never going to be possible to have a perfect definition, but there needs to be some greater level of certainty. Um, so that, that's what I'm advocating for. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Jason, you know, just thinking about sort of the recent history on this issue, I mean, obviously, um, the issue of refugees and immigration in the the U.S. is not a new one. But, you know, it's hard for me not to feel like the transition from Donald Trump to Joe Biden kind of seems like a lateral move in a way, because it's like we went from the kind of openly racist, uh, bigoted policies and pronouncements of Joe Biden, excuse me, of Donald Trump, uh, which was actually, I mean, a big part of his appeal. I mean, he kind of rode a wave of uh, anti-immigrant xenophobia into the White House. But also to Joe Biden, who, you know, while certainly more polite in his presentation around the issue, um, doesn't uh, really seem to be much of a positive uh, development in that one way or the other, as we've been sort of laying out. And so I'm just wondering if if you think that that kind of dynamic and, and how the uh, refugee and immigration issues have continued to worsen, even under a Biden uh, uh, administration, and if you think that that sort of has an impact um, on this issue as well. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I mean, I agree with you, and I think that actually for many people, including my clients, most of whom actually have pretty good asylum cases, uh, the situation is worse today than it was under Trump. I mean, under Donald Trump, like we knew who the enemy was. Um, they were doing everything they can to oppose people like my clients who were, you know, uh, uh, legitimate asylum seekers, uh, human rights activists, journalists, LGBT people, people who really do have generally strong claims for protection. Um, and so we knew that the government was going to do everything it could to try to prevent them from getting asylum. And and, the, and, and sort of in retrospect at the time, it was awful. But But now looking back, there's sort of some comfort in that. At least you know where you stand. Uh, now, you know, like people who have filled the new positions at the USCIS, at the DHS, at ICE, at the Department of Justice, um, you know, I know some of them. I mean, they're good people. But for whatever reason, the system has really continued to deteriorate under uh, Joe Biden. Um, and so there's so much uncertainty right now in terms of 
you know, we'll have cases scheduled that are canceled. We'll have cases that are set for two years ahead of time that are now, you know, advanced to two months ahead of time. So we don't have time to prepare. And cases are on the docket. They're off the docket. Um, you know, the asylum system, uh, it, it, it's very difficult even to get your client to an interview. So there are people who are waiting for interviews for asylum for four, five, six, seven years. Um, and that's actually quite common. And after the interview, there's long waits after the uh, interview for a decision. So just in sort of terms of a functioning system, we're really at a point where it's worse than it's ever been. Um, I don't think it's due to maliciousness. Um, I'm not really quite sure what it is. I kind of am the optimist, and he keeps hoping that at some point we're going to turn the corner. Um, but, you know, now it's a year and some months into the Biden administration, and, and things are worse today than they have basically ever been. Um, so, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not. It's hard to remain optimistic under these circumstances, and I, I really don't know what the explanation is. If it's just it's hard to turn the ship because it was there was a lot of damage done during the Trump administration, or if they're just not making much of an effort, or if their focus is somewhere else that I'm not sort of seeing. So it, it, it's a difficult situation right now for asylum seekers, um, not only at the border, but the, there's, there's you know 800,000 affirmative asylum seekers or people who came here and asked for asylum. There's about 1.7 million, 1.8 million people in immigration court waiting for their day in court. Many of them are asylum seekers. So you're talking about a lot of people who are waiting for a very long time, years and years. Um, and and, and you know, there really needs to be um, some sort of resolution to these cases at some point. And, and we're just not seeing that happen. And so that has been uh, a real problem. So the, the problems today are, in my opinion, in many ways worse than they were under Trump. They're different. Um, we're not facing that type of outright hostility and racism, uh, but but it, it, in practical terms, in terms of what's actually happening on the ground to people's cases and people, uh, it's really not a lot different, unfortunately. Yeah, well, we thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming Summit of the Americas being hosted by the U.S. government and how <laughs> Washington may very well be shooting themselves in the foot for how they're sort of operating in this whole thing. But we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Perry, a writer for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. John, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. And uh, it'll be very interesting to talk about the Summit of the Americas. Absolutely. And John, this uh, some of the Americas that we're discussing is being hosted next month in uh, Los Angeles. And as the name suggests, it's a kind of uh, hemispheric meeting of the different governments of the regions. But uh, the U.S. government uh, reportedly will not be inviting uh, countries within uh, the region, such as Nicaragua, Cuba 
and Venezuela. And this has already provoked uh, a, a critical response, I think, from different governments in the region, including uh, that of Mexico under uh, uh, President Obrador or AMLO, as he's known. And, you know, I, I'm sort of interested in how you think this could potentially play out, John. I mean, you recently published a piece about this entitled The Summit of the Americas Could Be Biden's Next Foreign Policy Embarrassment. And so it, it seems clear that the U.S. is uh, really angling for it, its own particular uh, geostrategic interest here uh, that I think uh, are often to the detriment of other people and of other countries and of other governments. But the way that they're handling this summit so far, it seems like, you know, uh, they could mess around and uh, very well be lonely at their own party. It's looking increasingly like that. Um, I think um, Guatemala said yesterday that they might not attend the uh, the event. So there are now probably at least 10 or a dozen countries that are, uh, are saying that they they may not come along in June. And indeed, the, the United States has still not issued the invitations or, or set an agenda. Um, so there's a lot of, of uncertainty around the event. Uh, but the, the one thing that appears to be certain is that the US doesn't want to in, in, invite the three countries you've mentioned, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela. And um, not surprisingly, this has drawn a lot of hostility um, from Mexico southwards. Um, started off with uh, AMLO, as you said, saying that he wouldn't go if those three countries weren't invited. And then the Caribbean countries who are united in their own uh, federation called CARICOM have all said that they won't go unless Cuba uh, goes too. And um, several countries have now joined in, so several other countries have joined in saying the same thing. And indeed, even um, uh, Bolsonaro in, in, in Brazil is saying he may not go to the summit, although his um, complaint about it, I think, is more to do with the US criticising the uh, potential arrangements for Brazil's elections in October. But I think the US is badly misreading the situation or badly misreading Latin America. The, they don't, the, the, the Biden administration doesn't seem to understand that Latin American countries, whatever their political differences, generally value the interconnections between uh, different Latin American countries. And, um, for example, in the case of Cuba, uh, many Latin American countries have benefited from Cuban uh, doctors uh, working in their countries over many decades now. Um, there's a, a bid to reintegrate Venezuela into into um, the international world because uh, not least because Venezuelan oil is very important at the moment, and um, Nicaragua too has good relations with other Central American countries. So it's not surprising that other Central American countries are saying that that, that Nicaragua should be invited to the summit. Yeah, and I'm wondering, John, how much the uh, apparent failure of this summit uh, to coalesce into anything meaningful uh, is a reflection uh, not only on the Biden administration's uh, terrible read of the room in regard to uh, Global South countries and uh, their relationships to each other, but I'm wondering how much of an indictment it is on the failure of Biden's uh, immigration policies, because, you know, there was a big 
big deal made about Biden sending Kamala Harris to certain countries to, uh, you know, talk about uh, how to, you know, ease immigration issues. But in particular, when it comes to uh, Cuba and the people who are leaving Cuba, they're leaving because of the uh, uh, economic issues that are made worse by the pandemic and the 60-year blockade on the country. Not, you know, because they hate their country so much, but that has not resulted in any change in the status of the blockade, even as the Biden administration has eased travel restrictions for families and lifted the uh, a ban on remittances. I think they just did that a couple of days ago. The blockade remains uh, intact. So, I mean, how, how much do you think this uh, uh, failed summit is really a reflection on uh, the failed immigration policies of the U.S. government? It's certainly a big factor, I think, that, um, as you say, Cuba, the, the, the U.S. administration seems to have changed its mind slightly on Cuba in the last couple of days and since I wrote the article. Um, but um, the, the slight easings of uh, the restrictions on sending remittances on travel to Cuba and so on are not going to help a great deal. I think that um, to give um, President Obama some credit, when he visited Cuba and freed the Miami Five who were in, imprison who were imprisoned in the US at the time, um, Cubans began to see the potential for uh, economic development in Cuba and better relations with the US. And obviously, uh, Trump um, stopped all that in its tracks. And people were hoping that Biden would uh, make a significant change. And it's taken until this week to make any change at all. Um, so it's not surprising that after the pandemic, uh, Cubans are feeling pretty pessimistic about the situation. Not only do, does the economy face the US embargo, uh, but it's difficult for tourists or to, uh, to or it's, it's been difficult to re re restore tourism in Cuba, which is very important to the Cuban economy. And um, the economy is recovering from the pandemic. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that there's now increased emigration from Cuba towards the states is not surprising. I think Biden, it would be in Biden's interests to open up much more with uh, Cuba and start to ease the embargo whatever problems uh, that gives him politically in Florida and, and places such as that where there are Latino communities. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also curious, John, how you think uh, broader geopolitical issues are sort of impacting um, uh, Washington's orientation towards Latin America and the Caribbean in this moment. And, and specifically, I'm talking about um, the war in Ukraine and what that has meant in terms of uh, the U.S. Uh, basically uh, continuing to try to organize like an international uh, anti-Russia front. But in, in doing so is in substance asking um, a lot of countries to go against their own national interest and not just as it pertains to um, their relationships with Russia, but also to China, which is, you know, sort of the other um, uh, chief opponent in uh, the U.S.'s new Cold War strategy and even countries like India as well. And you touch on this within your piece. And so uh, I'm just wondering how you see some of these broader global trends sort of impacting um, now not only sort of uh, uh, how this summit is shaping up, John, but also uh, Washington's orientation towards uh, the region in particular. 
Yes, I think that the, the, the problem is that the U.S., has always seen Latin America as his back, as its backyard, as, as everyone knows. And that means that when it um, assists development or invests in, in Latin America, uh, it's always on U.S. conditions. So that comes along with U.S. military bases. It comes along with um, Latin American countries supporting U.S. policy. And increasingly in the last decade, the region has been looking to other sources of, of investment, to China, to Russia, and to um, other Asian countries like India, Japan, South Korea, and so on. And of course, when it gets investment in uh, infrastructure or, in, or social investment projects from these countries, it by and large doesn't come with strings attached, certainly not political strings attached. So, um, you know, the, China and Russia have been investing uh, in Latin America and doing things which Latin American countries want to do. And uh, this is annoying the U.S. who see Latin America or want to see Latin America supporting them in their new apparent Cold War against Russia and against China. And at the moment, they really only have the support of Colombia. Uh, in that, who's the, uh, currently the, the firmest US ally in the region. Although, in fact, they, Colombia faces elections in May, and the, the leading candidate in the elections at the moment, Gustav Petro, is on the left and will certainly want to review the country's relations with the US and will, for example, want to reopen relationships with neighboring Venezuela. So there are changes in the air in Latin America and the U.S. seems to be worried about these changes and not really able to get to grips with those changes because it still sees Latin America in Cold War terms. Yeah, and on that note, I mean, that makes me wonder about how you see the role of NATO in Latin America. I mean, you you, you referenced um, their, their overtures to Colombia, and uh, you note in your piece that uh, back in April, U.S. National Security Advisor Juan Gonzalez said, quote, Colombia symbolizes all the best of uh, Joe Biden's sort of plans and desires and designs uh, for Latin America. And I <laughs> I can't help but think, I think, uh, I think it was was Hugo Chavez that called uh, Colombia the Israel of Latin America. And so even though uh, Colombia and these other countries are not North Atlantic, it seems as though NATO uh, uh, still has an interest there as an instrument of U.S. imperialism in terms of uh, uh, maintaining this hegemony. So how do you see uh, the role and relationship of an institution like NATO to Latin America um, as part of that broader project? I think, I think Latin American countries in general wonder why NATO has a role at all in, in Latin America, as you, as you rightly say, uh, even though Colombia has got a, uh, is in the northern part of the continent. No, no part of the continent is in the North Atlantic. Um, and there's, there's been talk about that. I, I, I don't suppose it'll move anywhere, but a, a, an ambition by NATO to incorporate Mexico as well. And... Um, uh, you know, I think we have to question uh, what are the motives of the U.S. in encouraging the expansion of NATO outside the North Atlantic. We ought to perhaps question its expansion within the North Atlantic. But certainly um, there doesn't seem to be any real strategic reason um, for Latin American countries to join NATO and antagonize their allies um, 
in Eastern Europe and in, in, in Asia, which is what is likely to happen. Uh, I mean, we've seen a big shift, haven't we, diplomatically, where most Latin American countries now recognize the Republic of China rather than Taiwan. Nicaragua did that um, only recently, and Honduras has promised to do it, although it hasn't yet done so under the new administration there. Um, so we're seeing a global shift, and Latin America kind of epitomizes that, that, that we're, in, we're living in a multipolar world, and... Um, uh, Latin American countries recognize that, but the U.S. doesn't seem to want to. Yeah. And, you know, last thing I'm just wondering uh, about, John, is, is since it's so clear that the whole thrust of U.S. foreign policy is a kind of desperate attempt to maintain a, a, a unipolar world under the control of the United States. And a part of this attempt has been to isolate the governments that the U.S. sees as rivals, namely China and Russia, and has set about to punish those countries who either, you know, won't kowtow to the whims of Washington or who basically have the audacity to want to act in their own national interest, right? And so my question to you is, I mean, do you think the U.S. runs the risk of being isolated. I mean, that's what uh, Washington is trying to do to these other countries, and that's why NATO is important to encircle and contain, to use their word, to contain uh, these countries, which in reality just means that um, they're coming up in the world and their rise in global stature uh, uh, will uh, be halted or slowed in some way. But do you think that the U.S., John, runs the risk of isolating itself as it you know, desperately tries to keep a multipolar world from coming about? The thing with the U.S. is that it that it's, it's likes to try to forget its own recent history and it hopes that everybody else will forget it as well. So that, for example, in Latin America, it's 20 years since the U.S.-inspired coup against um, Hugo Chavez that was unsuccessful. And in those 20 years, there have been 10 other coups that have been backed to some extent by the United States, uh, notably the one in Honduras in 2009 and uh, most recently in Bolivia in 2019. Um, and Latin American governments are well aware of this, even governments that are not uh, left of center. They're very well aware of um, the US history in the region. And so they're suspicious of the US. They're suspicious of US motives. Um, they know that uh, the US wants to pave the way for US companies to come in and extract the, the wealth of Latin America, as it has been doing for well over 100 years. Um, and so the US has got a lot of back history to really get to grips with. And there was a sense that um, Obama was, was partly doing this. You might remember the, um, the famous incident where Hugo Chavez presented Obama with a copy of the book, The Open Veins of Latin America. Um, which kind of symbolized uh, Obama at least acknowledging that there had been there was a history of exploitation here. But Biden doesn't seem to want to do that, nor does his administration. And um, they won't get better relationships with their Latin American neighbors unless they recognize uh, U.S. history and approach Latin American neighbors with a little more humility, I would suggest, and recognition that uh, these are autonomous countries that have their own uh, relations with other parts of the world and these relations should be should be respected. 
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're giving the historical and political context surrounding fears of Russia's nuclear capabilities. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dave Lindorf, an investigative journalist, editor of the online publication This Can't Be Happening.net, and the 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, Dave, since the onset of the war in Ukraine, or really, I think, particularly in uh, the most recent period, we've seen a lot of coverage and analysis of the uh, nuclear capabilities and nuclear weaponries of the Russian government. And on the one hand, I think this narrative has at least a toll in reality because Russia is a nuclear armed country. And if they there were to be an open conflict between Russia and the United States, which is also a nuclear uh, armed country. And I have to say, it seems as though, you know, as uh, crazy as it is that Washington may very well want that kind of uh, conflict. But if that were able, but if that was to actually happen, it would pose a serious threat to humanity itself. Right. But I think what's often missing in a lot of this coverage and analysis is the sort of documented history of the United States and not only using uh, nuclear weapons, but, you know, making nuclear threats. And so as we try to sort of understand uh, the war in Ukraine uh, on a deeper level, Dave, I feel like these are important things to drive home. And you recently published a piece about just this issue on this can't be happening dot net uh, entitled the U.S. nuked two cities in World War Two and has threatened to use them often since then. And so I was hoping you could sort of get into this uh, history of the U.S. and nuclear weaponry, Dave, and how you see it factoring in uh, uh, to the the Ukraine war. Yeah, well, I did a piece on this recently. Uh, I think that the concerns being expressed are serious, but um, are being presented in a in a alarmist way at the same time. Let me explain. Um, it is true that if the U.S. were to uh, introduce ground troops, uh, do a no-fly zone, um, you know, that even significantly uh, bring in uh, uh, what do you say, advisors um, who would be in harm's way, leading to defending them or, or responding to them being attacked, um, that we could find ourselves in uh, a escalation ladder, it's called a nuclear escalation ladder, because it's clear from what we've been seeing that, you know, the Russian military is not the 
behemoth, uh, you know, that it was seen as or presented as. Um, I'm not sure it ever was um, during the Cold War. It, the, the power of Russia's military has often been inflated deliberately by both nuclear and, uh, and conventional by the U.S. for the purposes of promoting more arms spending to, and profits for the arms industry. Um, so if that's the case... Um, you know, if if Russia were forced backwards and was in a place where it was liable to be defeated, then you know all the war games show that uh, that the loser, whether it's the U.S. or uh, Russia or U.S. or China, you know, in any of these cases with nuclear powers, the loser would rather than be defeated, try out using nukes, and that and that. The escalation ladder refers to they would start using tactical nukes to save their troops, and then uh, the other side would probably respond with that. But then very quickly, uh, it moves up the ladder every time they've wargamed these things. And I think that's true for the Russians, too, that every time they, they wargame it, uh, it's a matter of hours or days at the most before you go to a, a strategic nuclear conflict where you've got missiles flying over at both countries. So they're all aware of that. You know, Russia's aware of it and the U.S. military is aware of it and, and the U.S. Uh, policymakers. So I think there's a lot of bluster here. I think that uh, Putin in talking about and Lavrov uh, talking about their use of nuclear weapons being possible are really not so much warning the United States off, because that's always been the case with the U.S. and Russia uh, or the Soviet Union before. Uh, I think they're addressing it to Europe because they're trying to peel away some of the uh, um, what what's the word I want? Um, uh, automatic support for U.S. position on Ukraine to have somebody say, hold on, hold on. I mean, I think France is being cautious. And uh, and I think there's a large uh, uh, part of the population in Germany that is very anxious about this too. So um, the, I think it's a lot of bluster. And, you know, I think that even though you know, the, the the talk of the threat of using nuclear weapons might be seen as a, a lot of bluster. I mean, there is a historic, uh, a historical precedent for the U.S. not only using uh, nuclear weapons on other countries, but then immediately threatening to use those weapons against other countries. And, and can you give people who don't understand that historical precedent where this whole I've got nukes and I will use them against you if you don't do what I say bluster comes from in regard to the United States. Before I go there, let me answer one other question here that, that I was going to raise because uh, I, I was saying that there's bluster, but there's reality. The reality is that both the U.S. and Russia have a uh, system of operate of deciding on when to use uh, the, the tactical nukes, which are very small often. Some of them can be as small as like, you know, 
uh, single digit kilotons, right? Three kilotons, 3,000 tons of TNT, smaller than Hiroshima. And these uh, authority to use these can be devolved uh, in both countries down to the uh, battalion commander. Now think of that. You know, Putin may be bluffing about the use of nuclear weapons, but if they have provided, and I don't know whether there's any evidence of this, but if they have actually brought uh, tactical nukes with them into the field, um, you know, we've seen a couple of battalions, uh, tank battalions wiped out uh, of Russian tank battalions. Now, if a commander had a nuke and they knew who to hit with it, which is another question, um, then that might, they certainly have the ability to use that nuke. And, and that, you know, they might not, like the guy in the submarine in the Cuban Missile Crisis who, who decided not to use his nuclear torpedo uh, and save the world from a nuclear war. Uh, you don't know whether a local commander in that situation would do it or try to save his, himself and his troops. So that's pretty scary. Yeah, I definitely tend to agree. I definitely tend to agree. And you and you uh, noted something interesting in your piece here on uh, this can't be happening dot net when um, you talked about, you know, President Biden, Lloyd Austin, the head of the Pentagon, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and others. And you were noting about how, you know, Washington is admitting that it wants to, quote, weaken Russia. Uh, through this uh, uh, war, uh, they haven't gone quite as far, I think, as to <laughs> just sort of openly say that they want to, you know, maintain U.S. world hegemony. But I think little by little, uh, uh, the Washington's real motivations are um, sort of being revealed here. And it, it, to me, I, I feel like, you know, these elements, these people in power are aware of the uh, potential and the implications for what an open conflict with Russia could mean, but yet and still, um, they continue to to push in a number of ways. And so, I, you know, even though they they must understand what the impact would be for a nuclear conflict between Washington and Moscow, you know, here we are. And, and so that being the case, Dave, I mean, what what then is sort of the, the logic or the reasoning or the real motivation uh, uh, to continue this as it could drive us towards something uh, you know, drive us to a point that we very well uh, uh, may not be able to come back from. Yeah, that, that's the uh, that's always the question. Now, one thing that I, I'm relatively optimistic about is Austin uh, going, you know, talking to uh, Shoigu, the head of the Russian military. Um, the, uh, Lloyd Austin is the uh, Secretary of War in the U.S., and he had a one-hour conversation just recently with the head of Russia's military, and um, he asked for it, right? So um, normally, the side that isn't doing well or that wants a conflict to end is the one that goes to the other side and says, you know, I want to talk. Uh, let's let's uh, make a deal here. We don't know what was said between those two people. I mean, we get little hints uh, or they tell us a lie about what was said, but nobody's taping it 
so uh, or showing a tape. They probably did tape it, but uh, on both sides. But um, we don't know. But it is strange that that Austin requested the the uh, conversation. Um, I mean, would you call? Would would Shoigu have taken an hour listening to him say, "You guys got to surrender, or we're going to smash you," or say, uh, "You know, we're going to fight you for uh, years and and you know just uh, destroy your military gradually, or your economy and your military?" I, I don't think that he would do that. I don't. I don't think that Shoigu would listen for that long to that kind of threat. On the other hand, uh, they may have been discussing how can we get out of this, you know, <laughs> and uh, and that's a, that's an issue that can, should be of concern to both of them. Yeah, I do wonder, you know, how you think, Dave, the the recent developments about the uh, loss of the uh, Azov Battalion uh, in Mariupol to Russian forces and Finland and Sweden applying for membership into NATO, how do you think both of those incidents play into, you know, what happens in Ukraine, uh, particularly in light of uh, the, the very real threat of a nuclear exchange? Does the fall of Mariupol to Russia uh, lessen the, that threat and bring us closer to hopefully an end to this conflict? Or does uh, the addition or the potential inclusion of Finland and uh, Sweden into NATO just uh, uh, um, uh, increase the chances of the U.S. and NATO pulling putting nuclear weapons on another part of Russia's uh, border into other countries? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a little hard, you know, it's a little hard to know what the hell's going on because the U.S. and and the Kiev government are lying. And I, I, I'm sure the Russians are lying, too, about what's going on. So nobody's telling the truth here. Uh, and so what is going on? You know, I, I think it's evident that that Putin made a huge blunder. Uh, in thinking that this would weaken NATO, he's he's definitely strengthened NATO, which was on the verge of of collapse just months ago. Like nobody could really see a good reason for it, except U.S. policymakers. And and now you've got uh, two significant countries on Russia's border that are, uh, or Sweden's close to Russia's border, that are. Actively trying to join uh, NATO, and that's you know more of a threat to Russia. If they put missiles there or bombs in, you know, planes there that could go in planes there, that's a threat to Russia. So I, I think he made a blunder there, uh, and I don't think the war's gone that well. Uh, you know, the original idea was to uh, take Kev and uh, Kiev and uh, and uh, you know install a, a, a pro-Russian government there and that didn't work out so I, I think the resistance was much more than they anticipated so uh, you know there's that but on the other side the US uh, you know uh, is also unwilling to push any harder and do something like a no-fly zone or you know actively uh, send troops in so it, it is a stalemate and I'm not sure that the American people are behind that it's it's pretty unpopular war actually so both of them are are uh, both leaderships are kind of 
confronting, I think, this dilemma of how do we get out of it. And neither one wants to say that that's how they're feeling. Yeah, you said a couple of things um, that I think are noteworthy there, Dave. I mean, number one, when you talk about the fog of war and, you know, how it spreads rapidly and in all directions in a situation like this, certainly all sides involved are going to seek to um, advance their narrative. But um, that, that second part that you mentioned as well, in terms of the American people not actually being in support of uh, a conflict with Russia, even though overwhelmingly, and I think this is, you know, due to uh, what I would consider to be war propaganda from the the, the corporate owned media, um, there is sort of a strong uh, sentiment and support uh, uh, for uh, Ukraine in this moment and the U.S.'s support of it. But even if we look at recent um, polls the, that, that you know, ask questions about whether Americans support a no-fly zone and whether they support a conflict with Russia. I mean, it's interesting because overwhelmingly we see that Americans don't support the conflict, but somehow support the no-fly zone, which I think speaks to how a lot of these concepts and their actual, you know, definitions and impacts are being sort of purposefully, I think, kept from the American people, but that hasn't tamped down on, you know, them just simply not really having the stomach for yet another open conflict. But we're going to leave it there for now on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dave Lindorf, so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. 
We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, I want to wish a very happy 127th birthday to Augusto Sandino, revolutionary resistance leader against the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua, for whom the socialist Sandinista movement in Nicaragua is named. So salute to him and the people of that country who continue to defend their revolution against the attacks of U.S. imperialism. Also at the top of the hour, the Pentagon has decided that no one will be held accountable for an airstrike from back in 2019 of the Syrian town of Baguz that left as many as seven women and children dead. So this was a 2019 airstrike in Syria by the United States that killed 70 women and children. And the Pentagon is deciding that no one will be held accountable. Uh, Last year, the New York Times uh, um, published some of the details of the strike, which prompted Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to order a full review of the incident. And reportedly at that time, uh, there was at least one legal officer that uh, uh, flagged the incident as uh, potentially being a war crime. But there was a cover up by the Pentagon about the details. And uh, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby uh, spoke on this just yesterday, saying, quote, we're admitting that, yes, we killed some innocent civilians, women and children in 2019 in Baguz, Syria. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. It's all out there for you to see. We're admitting that we made those mistakes that we killed, that our operations ended up in the killing of innocent people. So here we have the U.S. government unambiguously uh, admitting to this uh, uh, airstrike that killed all these innocent people. But surprise, surprise, refused to hold themselves accountable for it. And as it happens, no one else really seems to have the ability or authority to hold Washington accountable either. Color me shocked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I wanted to highlight this, not only because I think it just sort of deserves to be raised in and of itself, but I mean, it's like if we look at um, like the the, the U.S. and its uh, accusations of war crimes on the part of Russia as it pertains to the Ukraine war. Now, obviously, we know that within war, war crimes are all but inevitable. That's part of the tragedy of war itself. But I mean, the way that the U.S. uh, uh, continues to pretend to be this, you know, uh, innocent angel on the world uh, uh, stage and not uh, an entity that would violate democracy or human rights just becomes more of a farce the more time goes on. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book, Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleets Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, uh, John, still ripple effects unfolding from uh, the recent racist terror attack and shooting in Buffalo in New York that left uh, several people dead. Uh, The uh, suspect taken into custody alive. Uh, And I actually want to take a moment before we get started today to say the names of those victims, just because I feel like they, they deserve that recognition. There was Roberta A. Drury, 32 years old, Margus D. Morrison, 52 years old, Andre McNeil, 
53 years old, Aaron Salter, 55 years old, Geraldine Talley, 62 years old, Celestine Cheney, 65 years old, Hayward Patterson, 67 years old, Catherine Massey, 72 years old, Pearl Young, 77 years old, and Ruth Whitfield, 86 years old. Rest in peace to them all. And obviously, uh, you know, this was a tragic thing to, to happen, John. But I mean, the way that we've seen the response from the U.S. government and from uh, the Joe Biden administration, I think is I mean, it's almost laughable if if the implications weren't so dire on a number of levels. I mean, Biden gave a, uh, a talk about this recently wherein he said, quote, what happened here is simple, straightforward terrorism. Terrorism, domestic terrorism, violence inflicted in the service of hate and the vicious thirst for power that defines one group of people being inherently inferior to any other group. In America, evil will not win. I promise you. Hate will not prevail and white supremacy will not have the last word. You have to refuse to live in a country where black people going about a weekly grocery shopping can be gunned down by weapons of war deployed in a racist cause. We have to refuse to live in a country where fear and lies are packaged for power and for profit. And I also want to play a clip of uh, Joe Biden talking about this just because I want people to hear his passion for the anti-racist struggle. So let's give that a listen. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through our, it really is running through our body politic and it's been allowed to fester and grow right in front of our eyes no more i mean no more we need to say as clearly and force as we can that the ideology of white supremacy has no place in america none Look, failure for us to not say that, failure in saying that is going to be complicity. Silence is complicity. It's complicity. We cannot remain silent. Yeah, so according to Joe Biden, white supremacy has no place in America. Um, I quite agree, but <laughs> I think if one looks at both the personal history of Joe Biden and the history of the United States as an entity, then I think a certain uh, things sort of rise to the top. But uh, curious your thoughts here, John. Oh, boy. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> About 51 well, minutes. I, I, I disagree with I disagree with Joe Biden. Uh, surprise, surprise. Or color me shocked, as Jackie said. Uh, white supremacy is the principle, along with private property, it is the principle around which American society, the Republic, has been organized for 400 years. Uh, it is not marginal to the Republic. It is not this sort of insidious peripheral idea. It is uh, the, the, the defining or one of the two defining ideas of who we are as Americans. Uh, it is it infects every institution. And so the question really is not why this young man uh, influence inspired by this ridiculous idea of whites being replaced by black people who, by the way, have no interest in replacing 
white people. We just want to be left alone, right? Those people he killed in that store. For the most part, if you had asked them, I'm pretty sure they would have said, man, we don't we don't want nothing white people got. We just want to be left alone. Or, or, or they might have said the only thing we want is the power over our community the same way that white people have power over our community or their community. Uh, and so, you know, Joe Biden, completely cynical. This is, I think, uh, a nod to the fact that uh, the Democrats are likely to be crushed in the midterm elections. He realizes that he has done absolutely nothing to deliver on his campaign promises, either to progressives or to African-Americans, who are the most uh, ferociously loyal Democrats in the country, the most ferociously loyal uh, block of Democrats in the country, uh, and that they're, we're very likely not to turn out at the polls. And so this is a sort of a desperate attempt to patch over that. Uh, it's probably not going to work, in part because we all know who Joe Biden is. He is Jim Crow Joe. He was introduced to American politics, or his his ingress into American politics was uh, as an opponent of school busing, as a supporter of school segregation. He did not want black boys going to school with little white girls, because, you know, that just, uh, that's upsetting to a lot of white folks. So, you know, we have a long way to go in this country before we can begin to uh, redeem ourselves for this 400 years of uh, terror aimed specifically at African-Americans. Uh, not because not because African-Americans are um, uh, subversive or unpatriotic, uh, stupid, but because just the opposite. We are the most patriotic. We are the most progressive block, voting block, or, 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 or uh, political block in this country. And we are the ones who have been the messengers since the end of slavery. We're the ones who have been the messengers of the working class. Look, man, if we just work together, you know, why do we do 100% of the work for only 40% of the pay? Why don't we work together and we have 100% of the pay? That's why they hate us. That's why they fear us. This young man, who went to the store and shut up an open fire. He doesn't know this, of course. But what has happened is that uh, all these institutions, the news media, the entertainment media, our schools, the academy, the political parties, people like Joe Biden, they work constantly every day to create this thing called a, it's called the N-word, right? And this young man believed it. He brought it, hook, line, and sinker. Well, as Malcolm said, you know, he said this to black people, but it's true of white people, too. You've been hoodwinked. You've been bamboozled. You've been led astray. And so I hope we get on the right course. Joe Biden's not the man to take us there, though. He's not the man to take us to the promised land. He's not a leader. He's completely a cynic. And um, we got our work cut out for us, man. Yeah, we most definitely do, John, particularly in this moment when all of these different things are happening at the same time, all of these converging crises, this uh, war, this proxy war in Ukraine, where the U.S., EU, and NATO have armed, legitimized, and and reformed Nazis in Ukraine, yes. just absolutely yes. reformed them. U.S. media outlets are call, calling the Azov Battalion that just literally lost their siege of Mariupol, calling them anything but Nazis. Uh, and calling their loss anything but a loss, they 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 were they surrendered. They they were evacuated. Um, no mention of the fact that they are neo Nazis. No mention of the fact that this murderer in Buffalo brandished the very same insignia 
of the Azov Battalion, the very same insignia that they are wearing right now, that was adopted from the Nazi Wehrmacht and Waffen-SS. And we've been telling people in this country about the link between white supremacists and in the U.S. and white supremacists in Ukraine since Charlottesville, since the murder of Heather Heyer at the Unite the Right rally. The FBI has confirmed that. The Atlantic Council, the, the, the propaganda arm of NATO, they've confirmed it. Uh, the the uh, Sentinel, the, um, uh, uh, the publication of the West Point Academy, they wrote a whole paper on it. But here we are with people in this country, John, at the same time cheering for the plucky neo-Nazi regiment to hold out against the Russian army in Ukraine, you, you know, just uh, uh, expressing the crying, these crocodile tears over the same kind of white supremacist, the same kind of neo-Nazi murdering 10 black people in the U.S. Make it make sense. Because at, at this point, I am just feeling like half the people I know who I see are still, oh, we've got to save Ukraine. Oh, we've got to support the Azov fighters. Or, you know, maybe some of them do have right wing leanings, but they're fighting against Russia. Those people are a serious threat to me. That's how I'm feeling. Like what John Henrik Clark said about us not having any friends. Yep. I'm yep. really feeling that right now, John. I talk yeah. me off the ledge, my friend. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right next to you on the ledge, Jackie. I can't talk you off. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's um, it, the, the thing that's stunning, really, is that, and, and you know, very few Americans realize this, but there is a school of thought that the United States has long been sympathetic, at least the establishment, has long been sympathetic to Nazis. There are academics, Michael Parenti is one, who believe that uh, the United States was so slow in getting into World War II because their fervent wish, uh, and we know that there were uh, Nazi supporters very high up in the government and in the ruling class, people like Prescott Bush, George Bush's father, or, or uh, W's grandfather, uh, were supporters of the Nazi cause, but that, that, that the, US, the US government I uh, hope that uh, the Nazis would defeat, uh, would kill communism, uh, as expressed by the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and so that's what delayed their ingress into the war, right? And, you know, furthermore, I would say this, you know, and this is why, of course, we are, uh, our, the country is so adamantly opposed to things like critical race theory uh, and, and so opposed to intellectualism. How many countries are anti-intellectual? Um, and, and the reason is because when is the last time the United States has been on the right side of a war? When is the last time that we could say the United States has been on, uh, that the history has shown us to be on the right side? We'd have to go back to World War II. And again, that's very complicated. But we've not been on the right side of any war. And, 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 and probably no one listening to this show can remember a time when the United States was on the right side of a war. We side with Nazis. We side with uh, the Israeli, uh, the, the illegal Israeli occupation of Palestine, which, which attacked a, a funeral last week. And on the news, they said it was because the, the pallbearers were throwing rocks 
at the Israeli soldiers. Now, how ridiculous does that sound? But that you would even shape your mouth to say that, right? As a defense, shows the 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 intellectual idleness, the intellectual sedition, right? That's what it really is: betrayal of thought and of the values of the so-called Enlightenment to sort of tie our our, our understanding to our political dictates and to white supremacy. Uh, it's, I, I don't know, I, you know, I'm 57, I feel 77, and I, I just, I've never seen a darker moment in America. And I've, I've lived through some very dark times, but nothing like this where we just seem to be sort of uh, bereft of any critical faculties that can help us begin to dig out from the rubble. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, Jackie and John, you say that you're you're both on the ledge. Well, hopefully uh, I can bring some revolutionary optimism to, to pull you both back uh, <laughs> along with the messes of the people that we're, we're going to need to really change this. But real quick, I, I wanted to highlight something that John uh, mentioned in passing, because I believe you were making reference, John, to the business plot of 1934, which is an actual, for real, documented fascist plot that was hatched in the United States, um, but of course was not uh, uh, successful. And what you were saying, you were talking about the the, the connections between Pre- Prescott Bush, who's the grandfather of George W. Bush, father of George H. W. Bush, who had these relations with uh, uh, the Nazi government in Germany and was part and parcel of that effort. That's not something that's well known uh, amongst the people of the United States, but, you know, I I think uh, relevant uh, on a number of levels. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by John Jeter. And we have a caller on the line here, Farron. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hello, Sean, Jackie, uh, John Jeter. Look, I'm a huge fan of your show. I listen to you guys every weekday. Um, first time caller. But um, I was uh, browsing through Twitter, and I'm noticing, uh, you know, in lieu of the, uh, the Buffalo shooting, there are a lot of blue checks calling for an anti-black hate crime bill. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I have a lot of issues with this. Um, you know, for one, I'm not surprised to see uh, a lot of ADOS calling for it, you know, um, not to insult, but, you know, they seem a little hey, historical, a little quasi-political. But, uh, I mean, but the thing is, is that they're bringing up how there was an agent of hate crime bill, how quick that came through. But a lot of people don't seem to realize that all it did was just give the police more money. And right. police aren't part of the problem. So, um, you know, so um, the thing is, is that, you know, pushing back on this a little bit, I mean, you know, say we get an anti-black hate crime bill, you know, uh, we still have an issue of qualified immunity, you know, and, and, you know, and to top it all off, I mean, I just don't see how it makes any sense to ask crime bill Joe for another crime bill. I mean, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, maybe there's some nuance that I'm missing. I'm just wondering what, what you guys think about this. Uh, thanks for taking my call. 
Well, thank you for calling, Farron. I hope to hear from you again soon. Definitely appreciate your support of the show. And I also really appreciate you raising um, the core contradiction with the anti-Asian hate uh, crime piece because we made the same point on the show that uh, a lot of it was simply just more funding from the police, which shouldn't be a surprise considering it's coming from, you know, the, the vanguard leader of the fund, the police movement himself, Joe Biden. You know what I mean? And so, you know, my thing is uh, when we talk about a hate crime bill, I mean, there's already first of all, there's already hate crime legislation on the books. And I suppose in a vacuum, there's nothing wrong with strengthening legislation. But I mean, I don't know what a, a piece of legislation like that could do to really stem the tide of like rising fascism in the United States. Uh, an issue that this country clearly uh, on the institutional level doesn't take seriously. And I think we've, you know, and you need only look at the January 6th, uh, 2021 fascist attack on the Capitol to really see a glaring example of that, you know, but uh, uh, John Jeter, definitely curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, I agree that I I think that, um, you know, it's trying to put lipstick on a pig. Um, these kind of legislation such as this, which won't fix the problem. The problem is a culture in which uh, blacks are seen as subhuman. Um, you know, it would be far more useful to actually call attention to uh, the National Football League's practice of race norming and just, you know, mm-hmm. studying that, you know, the, the racism that's inherent in an, in an idea. And this was not, you know, 1965 or 1865. This was 2020, 2021. Uh, up until this year. And I think it would be far more useful to have to start to break down this culture which considers black people subhuman, which fears black people, uh, and which also uh, fails to address the fact that, and white people understand that this is why you see the, this backlash, this violent attacks by people like this, this young man uh, in Buffalo. There's this fear that America is coming apart. It seems that the economy is collapsing and that whiteness no longer has the same value. We need to spark people's imagination so that they understand there's an alternative, right? You don't need, we don't want what white people have. The only thing we want is power over our own community. We want to teach our kids what we want them to learn. Uh, we want, you know, childcare. We want jobs that pay a decent wage. That's all we want. We don't want uh, to take over the country and replace white people. And so it would be far more effective if we could somehow lead a national conversation in our media uh, uh, by the politicians, but but not led by the politicians, more the politicians standing back and giving the people, real people, working people, people on the ground, people like the ones who were killed in that grocery store, a voice to say, this is what we want. Why can't we work together? And so, yeah, I agree both with you, Sean, and the caller that um, legislation is kind of superfluous. What we need is a conversation. Yeah, and I, I I do think that we cannot have a conversation with, as the caller said, crime bill Joe Biden, um, who let's never forget was the author of uh, the 1994 crime bill and argued on the Senate floor when uh, arguing for the bill, said that after this bill is passed, no one will ever say the Democrats are not tough on crime again. So Joe Biden in his now uh, role as president, not only has this guy made a, a uh, uh, he, he's championed his friendship and ability to work with actual literal self-described and everybody knows it 
segregationists racist and then he has the nerve to come out and say their the white supremacy has no place in this in this country i mean his entire career is like palling around That's with right. white supremacists but he exactly. is the guy who gave us the crime bill that ramped up mass incarceration and made the problem of policing which was already bad so much more so much worse and continues along that trajectory with uh not only uh giving police departments federal and uh local covid relief money that was and 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 simultaneously reducing funds for covid uh, measures uh, the white house is about to ration uh, uh vaccines all that kind of good stuff but um uh he's he's also responsible he and his party are also responsible for not doing anything with the george floyd policing act so i mean just took the recommendations for those reforms as weak as they were off the table when the moderate Democrats complained, didn't didn't even fight for any kind of police reform whatsoever. So I, I agree with the caller, John, that, uh, you know, and you that we, we need to have a conversation about what this country really is and the role of white supremacy, white supremacy in what this country is. But those conversations should not be held with people like Joe Biden or or quite honestly, I feel like, John, anybody in the Democratic Party who's not calling Joe Biden out for any of the things that we are calling him out for on this show. And I think that's probably everybody in the Democratic Party, with the exception of maybe two people. I don't know. Yeah. And when we talk about this, this conversation, I feel like this is precisely the sort of thing that would be good as a part of a political education effort or a a curriculum, if you will, when we really talk about the deep roots of white supremacy in the United States. And John, I think you're correct when you say that, uh, uh, you know, we're dealing with a cultural issue that legislation can't necessarily address. But what is the material basis of that culture? Right. Because culture, as it evolves, it doesn't exist in a a vacuum. It's defined by conditions. And I really and you raise the issue of race norming, too. And and it reminds me of like just just how deep like I think people are generally aware that racism is a serious problem. But uh, sometimes I wonder if we know like just how deep and profound and abiding that uh, white supremacy is and has been at just about every level in every facet of this society. Because when you raise this issue of race norming, this kind of uh, racist rubric uh, that was used in the NFL that, you know, basically saw the uh, cognitive or intellectual capacity and faculties of black players as being less than that of their white counterparts. And therefore things like concussions would um, impact them less and things like that. Uh, people may have heard us discuss this on the show on our weekly sports segment uh, of the red spin report. But, you know, to think about that, like that, that to me, that thinking is a direct descendant of uh, this racist pseudoscience like phrenology. You know what I mean? Like the measuring of skulls and all these sorts of things or uh, a drapetomania, which basically posited that, uh, you know, uh, Africans have a mental break and then try to to run away from the plantation. They only run because they lost their mind, not because of any other reason. You know what I mean? And even when we look at 
the iconography, as a lot of people have pointed out, and I think rightly so, about uh, the Buffalo shooter and his use of the Black Sun uh, a Nazi symbol. And when I saw that, I immediately thought of Dylan Roof. Y'all remember, you know, after Dylan Roof uh, uh, had, you know, another mass shooter, white racist mass shooter in South Carolina in a church of uh, worshiping people. Um, and that picture of him surfaced and he's wearing now he's an American, but he's wearing a flag of Rhodesia, uh, a British uh, racist British colony, of course, and uh, the apartheid flag of South Africa. Now, Dylan Roof, if I'm not mistaken, was born in like 1994. I think Rhodesia dissolved in like 1979. And so obviously this is someone who really admires and upholds the ideas and values and the history of these uh, racist white ethno states and uh, aspires to something uh, to that here in the U.S. And so a part of me feels like this uh, this racist terror attack, this shooting in Buffalo, I think it's important that we see it not as just another isolated, tragic incident. I see it as a part of a rising tide of organized and violent fascism in the United States that is being, I think, actively mobilized by one wing of the U.S. ruling class and basically facilitated by another through their inaction of doing anything about it. Speaking of uh, the Democrats. I mean, it's like if we look, I mentioned um, January 6th earlier, and I've said this on the show before, in terms of how, you know, there was a paralysis that set in in the U.S. political mainstream following the attack. And that would have been a perfect opportunity for the Democrats to get uh, Donald Trump and the main uh, conspirators and organizers of January 6th on charges of seditious conspiracy, it would have taken Trump uh, off the map, which I thought is what uh, uh, the Democrats wanted, and also would have dealt a serious blow to the fascist movement in the street. But instead, they did another stupid uh, impeachment when he only had weeks left in office anyway. And so we all got treated to yet another bout of completely pointless political theater. But this is what I mean when I talk about how these conversations should be a part of this being part and parcel of a political education project, what I mean is sort of highlighting about how there's no escaping the uh, white supremacy that is poisonous, like uh, Joe Biden said. And that's another funny thing about Biden's comments. I have to say, that's got to be some of the best speech writing we've seen in his presidency. I actually think that's a, a well-written speech, even if I don't think he really means any of it. But to show not only the death of racism in this country, but how it literally impacts every facet of everything else and how important it is to uh, capitalist exploitation and about how all of these things are employed to contribute to the oppression of uh, poor working and oppressed people here in this country. And what the, uh, I think, final analysis shows is that <clears throat> it's, it can only be an organized people's movement that can beat back uh, uh, the rise of fascism in the United States. And it's not something I think that can be 
legislated away like we're seeing or, or, or any of these sorts of things. I mean, you know, blue checks doing that. I mean, and that's what they do. I mean, they always uh, take the path of least resistance and all these sorts of things. You, you notice that they never really call for, you know, mass demonstrations or the development of a movement around this. But it seems to me that the point of this conversation that we're saying needs to be had, and I agree that it does, is to basically help people understand that the power to defeat fascism in this country is ours. We have that power, but we'll only have it if we're properly <coughs> organized and properly educated around the topic. You know what I mean, Jackie? Absolutely. I mean, and, and this is the thing. And I, 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 I'm really struck by what you said about the blue checks. Like every time, I, and, I, and I have noticed that, aside from just having these typically uh, uh, establishment takes, um, as to, you know, the response to these kinds of things. Oh, you know, uh, we, this is why we need to vote. That's the one that kills me. Just, you know, this is these kinds of things are why we need to vote in the right people in office. And, and you know, this is why you have to write your congressman or this is why you have to do something within a system that has time and time again proven not unable to, but is not designed to protect us. It is not designed, it doesn't, the system isn't designed to honor us as human beings. The system isn't designed to honor anybody that is not an oligarch and one of the people that holds the levers of control of this system. But I mean, on cue, the blue checks come with the do whatever it is that you're supposed to do within this system. And just once, I really would like to see a blue check come out with, okay, y'all, that's enough. Take to the streets. Everybody in the streets, we have got to, this, this has to be the moment where we have a massive show of people power in the streets in front of, you know, state capitals, in front of the U.S. Capitol, in front of these people's homes, just for once, I would like to see a blue check move outside of their comfort zone in this system. But, but see, that's the thing, right? There are too many folks who have found comfort in this system that we can't rely on even the ones who are supposed to be uh, the representatives of the quote-unquote movement uh, to, to move outside of their comfort zone. So, I mean, it is us. It, it is up to us. It is up to the people in the street, those of us, John, who are not blue checks, those of us who are not concerned with our, you know, losing our Twitter or Instagram following. It's, it's up to uh, those of us organizers, us people who are, uh, you know, activists and grassroots folks, door knocking, being an organization, carrying out political education and yes, radicalizing a whole lot of people, our family, our friends, our church members, everybody to expose what the system really is and to show people that it's, it is not designed for us. So we are the only ones we, we are, we are going to save us, John. Nobody else is coming. Yeah. And that's kind of frightening in itself too, because we we're so alienated from ourselves and from our history and from how great we can really be. I mean, the American people, and, and that's black and white, although I think I can safely say white more than black, because I think there still exists within our community, people like you and Sean, who uh, work very, work assiduously to keep people in touch with our humanity and our African roots, which, you know, we, we have to say that, that this system that is based on community, I mean, that still exists within us. 
Um, not as much as it used to, but it still exists within us. And that's what they really fear. So if you really think about it, the ruling class figured out, I would say, I would date it back to the Reconstruction period, the radical Reconstruction period. They figured out that they would much rather fight, fight a race war than a class war, right? When white workers and black workers get together and say, no, 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 that's ours. We're going to take that, right, for us, for all of us, right? And even though, you know, there's, there's never been any kumbaya moment in American history where white people join with black people and, you know, we sang kumbaya and we shall overcome and everybody sat down and did it. That, that didn't happen. I don't think it's ever going to happen. But when they saw, when white people saw their interest, white working people saw their interest as, as, as identical to ours, or at least very similar to ours, African-Americans, right, then we made progress. And so there is a material basis on which upon which we can fight. Uh, and, and Joe Biden is as potent a symbol of that uh, reflexive uh, need to divide the working class, right? Think about not just the crime bill, something people don't talk about enough uh, is this bankruptcy bill, which I believe he was the sponsor of back in 2003, why was he so ardent in pushing for that? Well, uh, under Ronald Reagan, we began to deindustrialize the country, which which did what? Uh, deindustrialize the economy, which which did what? It laid off a lot of black people, some white people too, but more black people were really disproportionately black people who made decent money working unionized factory jobs. We deindustrialized. We began to ship those jobs to China. And so the question becomes, how does the economy make its money? Well, exploitation, you deepen the exploitation. We can only do that through finance because we don't have, we don't produce anything of value, right? And so by 2003, the, the, the ruling class was really uh, bereft of any ways to make money other than uh, loaning it out. Well, you know, if you loan it out, people only have so much, only have the ability to pay back so much. So what do you do? You pass a bankruptcy bill so you can squeeze every little last bit out of the consumers, right? So there's a material basis for racism, right? A very real material basis. And the idea is to exploit people as much as you possibly can. But here's the trick, right? Uh, as, as I think it was J. Paul Getty used to say, when you owe the bank 50000 you got a problem. But when you owe the bank $50 million, the bank got a problem. Well, right now, we owe, I think we owe the bank something like uh, uh, $30 trillion, right? <laughs> the world does. So uh, the bank being the United States uh, Treasury. Uh, and so this country has a very real problem for which there is no fix. There is no way to address it other than a redistribution of wealth so that people like, 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 well, I should say me. I don't. I don't know your situation, Jackie and Sean. People like me uh, and, and other working people, black and white, like this young man who went to that store in Buffalo and shot shot up the place, so that people like us have opportunities, so that we have income, so that we can actually uh, restore the demand economy that has now collapsed because people are so indebted. They don't have any more money to buy to spend on goods and services that are produced by these companies. So you, they lay off jobs, they, they lay off workers, they, 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 uh, the, the, the economy shrinks, as we saw in the last quarter, where it shrank by 1.4%. These things are sort of inevitable, right? Because we don't address what capitalism, and particularly racial capitalism, really is. And so, yeah, I agree with both of you. I know we're kind of talking in circles in a lot of ways because we understand the problem and we only need for for, for 
the American people to understand the problem, particularly white people who I think become more and more entrenched in their white identity. They are, they, most white people see themselves as white, not workers. When they see themselves as workers, we will, there's a story someone told me once about South Africa that I love. I don't know if it's true or not. But during high apartheid, uh, the South African government put, uh, the apartheid government put Winnie Mandela on trial for something, some kind of subversion. And the prosecutor is grilling her. And she says, I'm not promoting violence. I just love this story, right? But they're grilling her. She's on the stand. And apparently she reaches into her purse while the prosecutor is talking, asking her question, demanding to know the answer to this or that question. She reaches inside her purse, they say, pulls out a matchbook strikes the match and she says you know don't none of this matter because one way or another we're going to own this country lock stock and barrel <laughs> you know and i just love that idea right of 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 the american people if we only we had that kind of resolve and we spoke uh that to that kind of solidarity we might stand a chance yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. John Jeter is here. And you know, John, you made a number of points um, before the break that, that I thought were noteworthy that I wanted to get to. I mean, first is this issue of alienation. And I think when you understand the operation of the capitalist system at a deeper level, then you understand why alienation is a feature and not a bug of that system, right? Because this, this alienation, which I tend to think has worsened in the, in the time since uh, the pandemic. This is what separates people. This is what exacerbates divisions. This is what keeps people from thinking about and feeling the need to engage in collective action to change their conditions. This capitalist system needs hopelessness. It needs despair. It needs people being discouraged because when you're discouraged, you're not thinking about, you know, doing anything constructive or fighting back uh, against things because, you know, uh, uh, you've basically been conditioned to think that there is no way out and that there is no hope and that there is no opportunity for change. And see, that's another of the psychological and I think mental impact of the capitalist system is how it just <clears throat> positively crushes and stunts our political imagination. Because th this is why people have trouble in the United States. This is why people in this country have trouble conceiving of a system 
beyond capitalism because we're also inculcated with this idea that capitalism is the best system there ever was. It's, it's a quote unquote natural system and nothing could ever surpass it or replace it. But I mean, you know, even something as simple as looking at the historical facts, you know, we can, we can plot like the actual time period that sort of uh, predated capitalism in the period of its initial development and things like that. What I'm saying is that there was a time before capitalism. It's not just like a, a eternal ubiquitous thing. And as such, there can be a time after it. But this would also have to be a part of this collective effort that I'm uh, uh, speaking of. And that's also why it's necessary. First, I want to say this is why it's necessary for white supremacy to be so integral and so imperative to the maintenance of uh, the capitalist system. Because the last thing that the ruling class wants is for poor working and oppressed people to organize amongst themselves independent of ruling class institutions to fight them for all the things that have been stolen from them. And this is why even if you look at uh, like labor struggles throughout the years, one of the greatest obstacles to uh, working class solidarity in the United States is racism. Be and so we see the utility of it. There is a lot of use in convincing uh, white workers that, uh, well, you may be poor, you may not have nothing, you may not have a pot to urinate in or a window to throw it out of, but the fact of your physical whiteness puts you above all these other groups. And the fact that you have more in common with them on a material level doesn't matter. And so what this does, it, 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 uh, it sort of helps <laughs> for them to forget about their poor condition and just sort of uh, plant their flag and have their image and their personal pride built on whiteness, right? And uh, a, another part of this stunting of the political imagination and this alienation is the separation of poor working and oppressed people from their history of struggle. And we've seen this countless times uh, uh, throughout the history of this country. I mean, if we're talking about uh, uh, multiracial organizing, I mean, we've seen that from the time of slavery. We know about the different uh, uh, sharecroppers and farmers groups uh, that were taking place in the South. Robin D.G. Kelly uh, writes about this in his book, uh, Hammer and Ho. All of these things. And in truth, whether we're talking about fascism or workers' rights, or voters' rights, or, or, or women's rights, or whatever it is. Uh, any positive change <clears throat> to the condition of poor working and oppressed people in this country have come from a sustained, organized, militant, militant struggle of those same people. It does not come out of the kindness of the hearts of officials. It is not something that is delivered as a gift from these, you know, undemocratic institutions like the Supreme Court or things like that. It has always come from the fight back, from the blood, sweat and tears of struggling people. And even though there are certain instances in history that people are familiar with in the United States, like I think people in this country have a vague idea that there was a struggle against slavery 
and it was ended at a certain point. And then sometime later, there was a struggle for voting rights and all these sorts of things. So we may be familiar with things like that, but we're not, we're not socialized in this capitalist culture to see ourselves as active participants in our own destiny, nor do we see ourselves as the inheritors or heirs or descendants of all of these righteous struggles, which have achieved so much for the struggling people of this country. And so this is what I mean when people hear me say how capitalism fundamentally skews how we see ourselves and not only as individuals or as families or as communities, but how we sort of view ourselves in relationship to other human beings in terms of what can really be changed. You know what I mean? And uh, as I often know, this is precisely why Americans have such a short memory, why we have such a poor grasp of history that that is necessary so that we are then left vulnerable to the propaganda that is pummeling our consciousness on a uh, constant basis. Um, and that propaganda is necessary for us to go along and to manufacture consent for the machinations of the ruling class that's exploiting us all. And so this, I think, John, uh, is a part of the, the, the deep history of struggle in the United States against racism, against uh, exploitation and oppression on different levels. And this is the history and tradition that people have been uh, separated from, and I would argue purposefully. And this is what we have to work to get back, I think, if we're going to actually strike a critical blow against the people and institutions in this country, and, and namely, and I want to be specific, to strike a blow against the ruling class, against the capitalists in this country, all of those things will have to be a part of this reclaiming effort and project that I think will emerge from the development of this uh, mass movement. You know what I mean? I do. I, um, you know, there, there is a, a singular achievement of the industrial age, and that is it remains the uh, development of the American middle class, a prosperous American middle class. Uh, blacks did not prosper as much as whites, but we still prospered during those years, roughly between 1933 and 1973, when the New Deal uh, really kind of catalyzed these movements, or I guess maybe the movements catalyzed the New Deal. But anyway, in any event, they worked in tandem. Uh, one very quick story, which I think really sums up what you just said, right? Um, for years before the Great Depression, uh, black, black workers we're pleading with white workers to let's integrate the union so that we can fight together. Because the practice before then was just to, if the whites went on strike, they just hired the blacks, pay them a little bit less, but they'd hire the blacks. The blacks went on strike, they just hired the whites. And so they were always fighting against each other. The black people once were always saying, let's work together, let's integrate the unions, we can fight together. Whites didn't listen until the bottom fell out during the Great Depression. And they said, oh, okay, maybe we can do this, right? We worked together, we made much progress, we organized the working class up to almost 40% by 1973, uh, but there was an event in a strike in 1946, right after the war. I think it was General Motors, and the UAW was very central to the organizing efforts uh, at the time. And um, the workers who, whose wages had been constrained by the war, by the wartime effort, they wanted a raise. And 
they demanded a, I think it was a 25% raise. But here's the caveat. Here's why they hate us. They wanted a 25% raise, but they demanded that the raise not cause a rise in the cost of the prices of the of the cars and the price of the cars. In other words, they wanted, and they figured out that they could get that 25% raise, and the the big three would still be profitable. That idea came from black people, right? That idea of a community of working people that came from black people. We are, and this will sound crazy to a lot of people, but it's true. We are the vanguard of revolution in the United States when it comes to working people. Black people are the vanguard of revolution. So the more you can you can promote the kind of violence that that, that, that little white boy did in, in Buffalo this weekend, the more you can convince him that we are the enemy and not the ones for him to follow, the richer the ruling class is going to be. And there's really no more to it than that. Jackie Lugman, your thoughts? I mean, I, I don't know what else there is to say, but I think that John is speaking to one of the reasons I love learning even more about the history of labor struggle in this country. Because I think the thing that, that really struck me about learning about the history of labor struggle in the South particular, particularly, is because I'm from the South. And, I, and interestingly, I grew up around uh, people who who acted as if they had no fear. But then I, I kind of go back to my hometown and I see some folks who are younger than I am who are kind of complacently taking the continued oppressions of the ruling class. And I, I wonder what happened to our fight back. So I, I enjoy learning about this long history of labor struggle among Black people, and particularly Black folks in the South, precisely because of what John is talking about. We, we are the vanguard of struggle and liberation for all of us in this country. So as, 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 as a pessimist, pessimistic as I feel, I understand that, yeah, the revolutionary optimism, it's still there, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, it's got to be because particularly in the moment that we're in right now, as conditions are getting worse and not better, and they seem like they'll keep trending in that way. I mean, it's going to be so important that we're able to maintain ourselves so that we're better equipped to organize as we should. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank John Jeter so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.